Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Trey Orndorff, a political scientist at Daytona State College and soon to be at Oklahoma Christian University. With me today is Ken Katkin, a professor at the Chase College of Law. Welcome to the show, Ken. It's great to be back with you. Oh, yeah. Thanks for having me back, Trey. Oh, it's, been, it's always a lot of fun. Uh, this week, we've definitely had a fascinating week in news. Uh, and I think part of that is simply that the issues that interest me have been some of the biggest issues of the week. So you got to love it when you're doing the show that week. Uh, we have some big economic policy with the ongoing war of words with tariffs. All week, we've been bombarded with questions about policy in the digital age in light of the numerous bombshells regarding Facebook. And now, of course, Mark Zuckerberg um, being called to testify before Congress. And then finally, we have the story that I thought would be the biggest of the week, but which has flown a little bit under the radar, a potential pullout of troops from Syria. But why don't we start with the Trump-China tariff issue, if you will, Ken? Uh, sure. And let's give us a little bit of context for this, and I've got, a, I've got some questions for you. So we have had a week of very mixed stock reactions uh, to the growing war of words between China and the United States. As a matter of fact, stocks tumbled again on Friday, and it seems clear, I would be too, I am, uh, that investors are worried about the potentiality of a trade war, especially after the Treasury Secretary and the Director of the National Economic Council stated on MSNBC and others that, quote, there is a potential for a trade war, end quote. Um, meanwhile, Powell, chairman of the Federal Reserve, has given no indication, especially in his Chicago speech this week, that the Fed is going to be deviating from its current path. Um, so this has worried investors, it's worried analysts. So what are we talking about here? Well, so far, the actual tariffs imposed have been minimal. We've had aluminum and steel uh, tariffs imposed by the U.S. Uh, the U.S., excuse me, and in response, uh, China has responded with pork and wine tariffs as retaliation. Everything else so far this week has been saber-rattling, um, but it is, in fact, worrying everybody. Um, Trump has doubled down both in his interviews on radio and on Twitter, arguing that we're not in a trade war because we've already lost the trade war. We have a huge trade deficit, he argues, and our loss of intellectual property, a topic we've actually covered on the show earlier this year. He's also arguing that the aluminum uh, prices being 4% lower show his policies are working, so we need to double down. So there's just more than a little bit going on there, Ken. So what do you think about what's happening this week when it comes to international trade between the United States and China? Well, it's, it's, hard to, it's hard to know what's actually happening. I'm not even sure that the aluminum and steel tariffs have already been imposed. I think he's already ordered that they be imposed, but um, there may still be a process, I think, that hasn't been completed yet. To, to actually start uh, imposing them. So the, the stock market fluctuations, I think I agree with what I took you to be saying, which is that uh, every time they go up, it's because the stock market goes down because people think he's really going to do this. Then the stock market goes back up when people think he's not really going to do this. And that, that explains the fluctuations that we've seen this week. Yes, for sure. Uh, yeah, but it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, it, it's the politics of it are interesting. The economics of it, I guess we have to speculate, but the the, the politics of it, most Republicans don't want these tariffs. Um, they can mostly only be harmful to American business. I guess if there's a upside to them that's that's could be possible, um it could be it could be good for American jobs at the expense of American business. Um, and uh, you know, so there's a constituency for that. I think the the economic theory of whether that would actually happen or not is is speculative and um, you know, I think trade wars 
overall for the total GNP, they, they can't be good, um, but they, they could cause some redistribution from, from, from business to um, workers, um, which, which there could be some constituency for. Um, so, uh, yeah, I don't, I, it's, it's just really hard to know what's going to happen, though. No, I think, and, you're, and it's right, I mean, there's kind of two issues, you know, what's kind of happening, the politics, the ideology of it being separate things. It, it is always fascinating when you have these situations, because in economic policy, you generally have the, the good is distributed widely, but minimally, right? So you have cheaper prices on things, and so that benefits you. Um, and the kind of the negative consequences are generally more targeted on um, as you're kind of pointing out, certain kind of worker, uh, workers, but generally not just workers in general, but workers in a particular class. So the pain is often um, uh, distributed a little more, not a little bit, a lot more narrowly on a, a specific area. And so it's interesting. So one possibility here is to interpret this as maybe a move by uh, Trump to attempt to reconnect with those uh, specific groups of people uh, by improving their plight, maybe necessarily at the, at the expense, potentially, of a you know, wider economic prosperity. What do you think about that? Yeah, I, I think that's what it was. And actually, I, I, I don't know this, but I, I suspected at the time that he announced the aluminum and steel tariffs that it was partly an attempt to influence that special election that was going on in Southeast Pennsylvania, because Southeast Pennsylvania is an area with a lot of displaced steel workers. And, uh, and so, you know, there could have been a very localized benefit there. If you, um, if you think of, uh, um, if, if we have fewer steel imports, then maybe more American steel is going to end up um, coming back a little bit. And, uh, and, and there was a special election going on in the precise district where um, that would be a benefit. But I, it didn't actually provide him that benefit because the, the Republicans did not hang on in that district, even, even with uh, Trump's announcement of the of the, of the aluminum and steel tariffs. And I don't know if everybody noticed this, but it, if you looked carefully at China's proposed, not the ones that they are, uh, you know, putting in potentially into effect as opposed to uh, retaliate against aluminum, but the, the broader proposed ones, you will notice that they are actually very clearly targeting kind of the, uh, the, the head of the Republicans party. I mean, for instance, he's definitely taking aim at say Mitch McConnell. I mean, if you take a look at that list, it's really, Really fascinating to see uh, which items are getting uh, Kentucky picked. bourbon. Yes, <laughs> yeah. Kentucky exactly. bourbon is number one. Yeah, and, uh, uh, I, which is which is I mean uh, smart move in a sense. I mean I, I'm not condoning it, saying one ought to do it, but it's it's fascinating. Yeah, well, the Republican congressional leadership doesn't want these tariffs at all, anyhow. But um, it'll just make it that much more painful for them. The, the, the agricultural tariffs, which are also hitting farmers, which are a big uh, Ch Chinese agricultural tariffs aimed at farmers in, in the U.S. farm belt, that I think is also similar to what you just said. That's another direct uh, shot at, at Trump voters that uh, the Chinese government's trying to make them feel the most pain for this. Although that's a dangerous game for China because they, they have, um, you know, food is expensive there and it's hard for them to feed their whole population. And, and they're going to be inflicting a lot of pain on their own population if they really impose the tariffs against soybeans and things like that that they're talking about, which which I think um, the fact that they would even be talking about something that would impose so much pain on themselves, I think is really more evidence for the theory that you just said, that they're, they're really specifically, their whole goal here is to try to um, inflict tariffs on regions of our, that will hurt regions of our country that, that were tr strongly supportive of Trump. And you know, the other thing that's interesting, so I mean, you know, that's kind of the, the pragmatic politics side of it. The other thing that's really interesting to me is, oh, wow, I mean, over, over a year ago, we were talking about some of the interesting overlays between 
um, Trump because he, as you've, you've noted a couple of times now, you know, Trump is not aligned with the majority of Republicans on the issue of tariffs. As a matter of fact, I mean, he is far more, um, he's going to be far more aligned with a guy like Bernie Sanders, which has brought yeah. up some really interesting um, pieces this week because you've got um, Bernie Sanders and others actually kind of supporting these moves out in the open saying, well, I don't like the way he's going about it, the bombastic nature of it, of course. Um, but, you know, in general, I agree in the abstract uh, with what's happening here. He was uh, followed by, you know, close to you, Sherrod Brown, um, Bob Casey and others. And so it's interesting because we've been pointing out on the show how this is a point where uh, the left and Trump actually have a lot of common ground. I mean, is another possibility here for Trump with tariffs? I mean, it's difficult to attack him on this from the left. What do you think about that? Yeah, from from the from the from the left left. I think the center left, the sort of the Hillary Clinton wing of the Democratic Party would be more aligned with the Republican congressional leadership on this issue, but the it's absolutely right that the the Sanders wing of the Democratic Party, the Sherrod Brown wing, they they they'll be aligned with Trump on this issue, and and that's the way that Trump won states like Michigan and Ohio and Wisconsin, right? The, 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 those those voters trade was a these are traditional Democratic voters for whom trade was a very uh, key very important issue, and and they they the, that the, that constituency is is probably going to be the strongest uh, supporters of what Trump is doing right now. I mean, do you think, man, one of the things that, and I'll be honest, this is kind of, I'll be transparent, obviously, in my own ideology here, that worries me specifically is that a combination of these kinds of voters could lead to what I see as very disastrous tariff policies being possible. Uh, what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't use the word disastrous, but I agree with you, it's negative. I, I think these tariff policies are harmful to the country. Um, I, I think there may be some it's hard to know exactly how big a deal they are. And, you know, there's there's the debate, you know, you, people talk about what caused the Great Depression. And for a long time, I think a, a dominant theory was that the Smoot-Hawley tariff caused it. Yes, and, yes. And, 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 and so that's disastrous. But I think now, you know, I think more more contemporary economic historians would say, well, that was a small factor in it. And it was really just the stock market crash that caused it. And, uh, you know, like we saw in 2008. So, I think I do agree with you that these tariffs have a, a negative effect on the on the economy. Um, I don't know. I don't know the magnitude of it, though. I think it's hard to say how negative of an effect on the economy. Now, and this is a really difficult question. I recognize we're going to be speculating here for a second. But I mean, one of the things that's interesting to me is, is I think that for a long time, there has been a a left-right, at least among your Republicans and Democrats, right? I mean, you have obviously uh, further right and further left who are going to have some disagreements, but among uh, those two, that free trade, free economic, uh, free economic exchange was a net benefit for the country. And I mean, you saw that in the fact that it's Bill Clinton who's signing NAFTA. And oh, it yeah. seems today, though, that we're having a shift. And when you take a look at the polling data by age, it looks to me like that, that that part of this rift, I mean, I know Bernie Sanders obviously doesn't fit this stereotype, but a lot of his supporters do, uh, that the younger you are, the far less likely you are going to be to be an advocate for free and open uh, trade and borders. And that that seems to be a potential shift as we move forward. And it also seems to me to be, I mean, again, a bit of a speculation, it seems that when you have that view that it goes along with an, an enhanced sense of isolationism and nationalism. 
Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. I'm not totally sure about the age thing, but I agree about a, a lot else of what you said. The 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 I think you know displaced uh, you know formerly um, uh, people who were in the manufacturing sector and who actually were displaced from their jobs tend to be older, and I think that is a constituency that really does not like free trade. Um, so I'm not sure it's just younger people that don't like free trade. I think it was older voters in in Ohio, Wisconsin, Michigan that that may have t- tipped that election. People who used to work in in, in manufacturing. No um, disagreement. But, but, yeah. Yeah, but the uh, but but yeah, younger people as well. They they don't have the opportunities today. For, you know, especially the non-college segment of the population. If you've got people coming out of high school today, maybe not going to college, or maybe going to some college but not graduating, and that that's got to be half or more of, of young people. Um, that the, there's the the opportunities that are available to them today are nowhere near as good as the opportunities that would have been been available to people in that dem- demographic a generation or two ago. And and I think they do tend to to blame a lot of that on on free trade. That the kinds of jobs that their parents or grandparents had um, are in China now. They're not in America, and so that's that's a that's a, a political uh, problem. No, I think you're absolutely right, and I, I wasn't. And you're right that in the current election. Uh, but what I what I think might be interesting is to see if you know does that mean that these kinds of elections become more likely if you know as as time moves forward as a result of demographic feelings shifting uh, about trade policy. But, and, and you're right when you're talking about students, I mean, from personal experience, I mean, I know you're, you're getting them a little bit later in the process than I do. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's amazing how often you'll have students who are working and they're making just a little bit of money, comparatively speaking, and right. they, they sacrifice their long-term good, right? It's the marshmallow test, right? They sacrifice their long-term good by, by not finishing the degree or screwing up the degree and going, you know, going longer uh, because they get this immediate good of, well, I'm working and I'm getting this. And I think, well, you're not going to want to live on that forever. But anyway, that's right. a sidebar. <laughs> yeah. But, but, but see, two, two generations ago, they easily could have lived on that forever. If they, if they had a high school degree and they went to work in an automobile plant or something, exactly. you know, and yeah, they'd be good for life. Now, I, I'm going to, here's one thing we can talk about where we might have some left-right differences. I think that has more to do with the decline of unionism than with anything about international trade. So I think if we had strong unions today, like we had two generations ago, um, you could still have um, better wages and better benefits and better job security, um, even in today's economic environment for um, for 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 uh, basically, um, you know, for, for for the kind of workers who are not uh, professional class workers. And I think the reason that those jobs have gotten so much worse is because unions have gotten so much weaker. But I, I know that a lot of people in that demographic would not look at that as the cause, but would look more at, at free trade as the cause. Now, that's a fascinating claim. I mean, so... Y- because one of the things that we have moved toward in the United States has been a more uh, service intellectual uh, production economy. So, I mean, do you really think that unions could have stayed that tide? No, yeah, because it's. I think the service economy is a broad phrase, but it includes service intellectual, as you said, but it also includes service um, relatively unskilled. So, if you look at like people who work in retail or in in fast food or in in uh, all kinds of jobs like that, you know, they have a union, but their union doesn't have the same kind of clout that the uh, United Auto Workers would have had a generation or two ago. Um, even though there's similarly large numbers of people working in these occupations. And, uh, and so we sort of had a tradition that the strong unions were tied to the manufacturing trades. Uh, perhaps the weaker unions were tied to the unskilled service trades, and those were seen as lower wage jobs. But I, I think if, if, if workers in those kinds of jobs would engage in the kind of strong collective action 
that um, Teamsters and people like that were willing to engage in uh, a couple of uh, generations ago, um, I think they could be having higher wages and higher benefits. So, so, so instead, to me, the question isn't why did we lose steel to China. To me, the question is why does a worker in a retail store not get thirty dollars an hour? Um, you know, and so, so uh, because I think that that's the equivalent of what the auto worker would have got uh, a couple generations ago. And, and, I, and I think the auto workers got it because they fought for it, not so much because of any particular um, international trade context. Uh, fascinating. I see. I would argue that the reason you don't see that uh, that kind of shift, and maybe we're not having quite the eco, the ideological battle that listeners would hope for, <laughs> is uh, is because simply that the the market is not going to bear the thirty dollar an hour uh, individual at the uh, at the retail store, right? So back in the day when I was working at TJ Maxx, you know, if I was making thirty dollars, then uh, nobody would have been shopping there. <laughs> uh, well, not that I wouldn't have liked thirty dollars an hour, but um. Yeah, see, I, I just don't agree with that. Um, I, I think that the same arguments could have been made in the auto industry in the in the 50s and 60s, right? That you know that that the auto companies would have said, well, if we have to pay all our workers really high wages like that to make automobiles, then um, you know nobody's going to buy an automobile. Um, but in fact, that wasn't true, right? That they the unions forced them to pay that much. The prices of the cars went up a bit, and people did pay that much, and the, the industries were successful through the period of time when um, the unions were strong. And, and uh, so, so, you know, we, we don't really know. I mean, there are some differences. Like if you look at um, in, the, in the big box stores, you have Costco where they have strong unions and then you have Walmart where they don't. And the job is basically the same job. And the people at Costco get paid a lot more and both companies do fine. Um, so I, I, I don't know that it's obvious that um, I think that's I would look at that as a standard kind of um, you know, conservative argument that the, the businesses can't afford to pay more because they'd have to charge more and then they wouldn't be able to sell their products. But I'd say from my from my perspective on the left, I, I just don't I don't buy it. I think that if they if they charged a little more so they could pay a little more, then people would still buy the products. But I mean, if that was true, I mean, so if the if the uh, if the Costco Walmart argument, if that is the central nature of it, then why wouldn't you have firms attempting to bid up labor to get the best people? Uh, I think they're more. You know, again, we're talking. I think that is what happens in the professional sector that 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 you were talking about. But I think if you're talking about the relatively unskilled sector, they don't need the best people. They'd rather get the cheapest people. But and that's why and that's why the uh, um, the only way that the, those kind of workers I think can get their wages up is through collective action. So the the uh, but they would then have to have the recognition that they need collective action, which kind of seems to be impossible in this. Fascinating. Um, I think we might have a, sm a small difference there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, no, now I think we've uh, we've probably veered enough away from yeah, terrorists yeah. but no that's all good we'll have to maybe we'll have to return to that i know that oftentimes listeners are deeply interested in our you can nothing gets people more commenting on social media than when we have comments about economics and i think that's because we oftentimes vote retrospectively with our wallet but <laughs> right, right. <laughs> um but let's move on to something a little more abstract but also concrete and that's what's been happening with facebook facebook and i'm sure that they are not happy about this have been dominating the news for the last week and for, in their opinion, again, all the wrong reasons. Um, and it has opened up a lot of important questions concerning privacy in the digital era. 
But let's just start by looking at what's going on with Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg specifically. The first story that broke was uh, Cambridge Analytica. It was a political consultancy group that was hired by the Trump campaign. And the group gathered detailed and improperly gathered details on Facebook information for 87 million people of whom 71 million were Americans. And in effect, just to, to break this down simply, what, what made this possible was that the uh, it was an, it used an app, that's a, a, an application that interfaces with Facebook, um, to gather data from people who took a quiz. Now, that doesn't seem like a big deal, but basically they were using some loopholes in the Facebook rules to allow them to not just gather the data on the people who were using in the app, but everybody who is connected to the person who is using the app. And so even people who had not consented, you know, even perfunctorily uh, to this, had had their data skimmed for the purposes of the Cambridge Analytica app. Well, then we find out that Facebook search tools have been using for data. So people were skimming data off of the search tool after having purchased some basic information from the dark web. Then we also find out uh, that Facebook was discovered, at least on Android phones, those of you who on iOS, like myself, were safe, um, to be recording your call and texting data. Um, and it confirmed that it scans all of your uh, messaging app conversations. And those are just some of the biggest news items. There are more. We obviously can't cover them all here, but just to give you kind of a a few of them. This has led to, and I'm sure we're going to talk about it on the show next week as well, um, Zuckerberg being called to Capitol Hill for a series of hearings this week. As a matter of fact, um, Ed Markey, a Democrat from Massachusetts, has argued that Facebook has had a, quote, avalanche of privacy violations, end quote, that strikes Americans' right to privacy. Facebook is going to go so far this week as to take out a full newspaper ad, which is very ironic, um, apologizing for all of its digital problems. Interestingly, it wasn't that long ago government was upset with another tech giant over privacy. It was Apple. Only that time, it was for being a little too private uh, and not building in back doors for the government. So as a result, this week, kind of the penultimate of the conversation has been between Tim Cook of Apple and Mark Zuckerberg of uh, Facebook having a substantial war of words leading up to the congressional hearings over the role of tech companies in privacy. Cook has argued that there are some things that are, quote, bad for civilization, end quote, and you just shouldn't create it. Instead, Cook argues that you should never make the consumer, i.e. their data, the product. Zuckerberg has argued that Cook's comments are glib and that to make services freely available, they need to make the consumer the product. Otherwise, only elites can use technology. And that seems to potentially be the argument he'll be taking in to Congress later. So Ken, if you were Congress, what would you be asking Zuckerberg? And especially this week in light of the EU passing this massive privacy bill, uh, digital privacy bill. Is it time for the U.S. to think more carefully about this issue? What would you be asking Zuckerberg? What do you think about this? Yeah, I mean, it is a very hard question to set the right policy on because um, it seems to me people uh, rightly get, consumers rightly get very upset when um, personal data is being collected on them in some secretive way and, and is being sold and shared outside their knowledge. On the other hand, I think the countervailing point is that if people are no, if people know this is going on and they're asked, um, you know, how much do we have to pay you to have all this data about you? 
people accept very low prices for that, right? So if you think about like the grocery store card or something like that, you know, you the grocery store says to you, you can have a frequent shopper card. And if you tell us by using that card, every product you're ever buying ever so that we can have a complete picture of all your consumer habits, you know, we'll give you like a dollar or two off, you know, when you come to the cash register. Uh, people, people are willing to take that. Almost everybody's willing to take that deal. So it's a, it's a complicated question that, that, that people would sell this information for very low prices, but they get um, very upset when this kind of information is, is used um, without their knowledge or consent. No, and you're right. I mean, at, at a fundamental level, we, we do sell those. I think, I think the other part that makes the Facebook story so particularly personal is you know, and you make a really great example of other areas where we uh, sell our data either explicitly or implicitly, like with the, you know, you get your Kroger card or you get your yep. Winn-Dixie card and you head to the grocery store. But I think for a lot of people, when you start saying, well, you know, how often and when do I buy milk and eggs probably falls into a different bucket for most people than, uh, you know, all of the conversations I'm having over text message with my wife the person yeah. who's not my wife, <laughs> you right, know, all right, of right. these yeah. potential things, uh, you know, combined with say all of my children's photos. And so for what, what do you think about, I think, cause for, I think yeah. the average American, they're going to put those in separate buckets. They're going to go, yeah, my milk is one thing, but my baby pictures and my conversations with my wife, that's another thing. Yeah, I agree with you there. Although I, I wouldn't, um, you know, the, the milk is one thing. Remember, this is data that could be sold to people like health insurers who are going to, you know, see that you eat a little too much ice cream and they better, better charge you higher premiums for mm -hmm. insurance. So, so I think they're, they're, that, that stuff does actually reveal a lot of things about you that, that could have uh, a real impact in your life. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't minimize that. But, but I certainly do agree with you that people uh, will, will be a lot more concerned about the things that they consider more personal and private. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, I, I, there's something so creepy about what Facebook did that it seems that it ought to be illegal. But on the other hand, I think it's very hard to figure out how to draw those laws that, that um, in ways that don't interfere with um, kind of everyday transactions where people actually would rather um, give up some privacy uh, in order to to get some some financial benefit of some sort or another. I mean, I don't know how many people would pay $10 a month to use Facebook, say. You know, if, if, if there was an absolute rule against reselling user data, and so Facebook went from being an a advertiser-sponsored service to being a um, sub subscription service that the users had to pay for, um, you know, I, I think a lot less people would be interested in it on, on, that, on that basis. Oh, I think you're right. And as a matter of fact, I, I think you're also very right about the amount of data that gets collected with you with the grocery store. So, for instance, I don't know if, if you remember the story from a couple of years ago when Target was able to predict when you were going to be pregnant. Did you did you read about oh, that one? No, no, I didn't. I this didn't is actually one. listeners. This is fascinating. You can go look this up. I use it in class. Um, so uh, Target began using uh, it's it collects a bunch of data on you because you if you use their credit card, right? That's kind of like having a store card, and they can yeah. predict all kinds of things about you. Well, what they wanted to be able to do was effectively when to send you the right kinds of coupons to get you to come back into the store, right? Which mm -hmm. is, which is a uh, classic examples. As a matter of fact, my wife used to work for the Kroger Corporation. So I know about some of this from the background side too. Um, but in this case, it was Target. And so what, what happened was that the predictors of when a woman was pregnant um, actually began to outpace when the women themselves would know they were pregnant. And so what began to happen was they were getting basically, congratulations, you're pregnant. Here are some coupons so that you'll come to Target and start preparing. 
before, <laughs> yeah, before they knew that they were pregnant. So they were getting ready, like, well, that's stupid. You know, why are you? Oh, and as you can imagine, that creeped a lot of people out. Uh, yeah. and, and so today, as a matter of fact, Target now builds into its system. There is a delay. Like, so they're, they still know that you're pregnant before you do uh, based on your purchase habits, but they don't send you those as quickly. <laughs> um, so so they, they can tell by like changes in what kind of food people are purchasing or changes in whether they're buying condoms or not or what, how do they how do they know that <laughs> i don't have that answer i mean that's, that's part of the secret i mean the ability yeah, yeah, yeah. To, to have that big data but the fact that they were able to do it so i mean it, it's obviously some combination of changing of purchases increasing of purchases and purchasing habits for the uh for the user indicates right. hey wait a second we're increasing your likelihood of being pregnant by x amount you know mm -hmm. uh, so i agree with you on the private and, and so i guess what's interesting to the to the facebook question is that I think for a long time, this has been an issue that most of us have overlooked because we haven't really thought carefully about the implications of what massive statistical models can predict when we have giant ends. <laughs> right, right. And the amount of information that we put into that. So this, I don't think we should be lambasting the statistical models. They've been around forever. And you're right to point out that it's not just Facebook. But I think that the upside of things like Facebook or Zuckerberg is, I don't think any of us, few of us, I have, but I'm the weird guy who is like shouting into the wilderness. Um, <laughs> I, I don't think most people have thought carefully about what this might mean. I don't think they've made active choices. They've just made these passive choices where they've clicked accept and they haven't really thought about, well, what, does, what, what is the end result of this? Right, I agree with you there. And, and I, I think the sort of cultural shift is people expect, you know, when you walk around in, the, in a city today, you actually expect that you're on a surveillance camera everywhere you're going. I think, I think people expect that the kind of privacy people had a, a, a generation ago or two generations ago, again, it's just gone. People, everyone's under surveillance all the time. And, and I think because people expect that, they don't worry about it as much. But, but that the kinds of things that Cambridge Analytica was doing with this data, it, it's causing harms to people that people can't even contemplate. That they, can't, they, they might think, well, what do I care if somebody knows what groceries I buy or, or even what uh, political posts I post on Facebook? You know, if I post political posts, posts on Facebook for my friends to read, then I'm not trying to keep my politics secret. So what do I care? But they don't really realize that that's opening up more data about them to being used in, in big data models that can manipulate them in a variety of ways so that there's that component of privacy as well. Yeah, and so you know this, and then this is again. I know we we were kind of taking the tariff a little bit further, but maybe we could do this with Zuckerberg. But I, I really have been thinking about if I'm Congress, you know what what are the pragmatic questions that w that I'd want to ask Zuckerberg about privacy, Facebook, to help us. I mean, if I was really trying to honestly think about this issue, because I think it's a complicated one, well, what I want to know from him. I mean, obviously, I mean, this is a chance to grandstand, but if I was just trying to be, you know, thoughtful in policy, what would be my honest questions? Do you have any things that, you be, that you'd be interested in asking, Ken? Uh, yeah, I mean, maybe, um, you know, there was an op-ed in the New York Times yesterday by Jonathan Zittrain. He's an uh, internet professor at Harvard, and uh, he, he thought that the right um, kind of approach for Congress to take is to, um, in the same kind of way that doctors and lawyers, as part of their professional responsibility, have fiduciary responsibilities to their clients, 
which include, um, you know, it's responsibilities to give them uh, the right kinds of advice and responsibilities to safeguard uh, the private information that they hear from their clients. Um, he thought that that kind of thing could provide a good model for how to think about um, what kinds of uh, duties a, a, a company like Facebook would owe to its customers to put them in in that kind of ethical trust relationship or fiduciary relationship. That sounds to me like a sensible proposal, although I still don't know how you iron out the details of what that would mean in this context. Yeah, especially since the oversight of that would involve making trade secrets known that I don't think that these companies, under the current model at least, would be willing to may to be made known. Um, I mean, and just like when you're asking about Target, I mean, that's that's the one of the interesting things about this. The ability, you know, the way that you are parsing that data is your moneymaker. You know, if, if other people have that, then they can make comparable products. Yeah, well, I, I think the Zitrain proposal wouldn't necessarily require that they um, disclose those formulas to regulators. But I think what it would require is that they, they not... Um, uh, they not try to give advice to their users that's not in the interest of the users. So the, the analogy, yeah, the analogy that he makes is he says, you know, a doctor, um, if a doctor diagnoses you and thinks one medicine would be in your best interest, the doctor doesn't say to you, well, um, um, do you consent to me just giving you poison or, or would you prefer the medicine that will actually help you? <laughs> and, uh, and, 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 and he says that, um, you know, the way, the way the companies like Facebook have been using these, um, uh, uh, the data they have, it's not just how they're collecting it or how they're analyzing it, but it's how they're actually using it. They're, they're using it in ways that are, that are harmful, um, to the, 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 the Facebook users because they're, they're, they're selling it to companies like Cambridge Analytica that will then, that they know will use it to put fake, fake news out there and things like that. And that they know that's not in the interests of their users, so that so that that would be the point of regulation, I guess, under this Zitrain proposal would be to say don't 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 abuse the data in ways that is likely to be um, harmful to the the customers, to the end users. So so I, I don't I don't it doesn't the trade secret aspect of it doesn't bother me, but the details of how you really make a rule like that that you could enforce, I I think there's some some work to be done filling in those blanks. Yeah, and yeah, that would be that's a that's a monumental task. And I know that the EU has one, but I know that also many companies are they're happy about it in one sense, but they're frustrated with it in another since it's very difficult to tell when or when not you are actually abiding by the the new rules. Although we don't want to get too deeply into that, but you know, to maybe kind of make a a point back to the tariffs and to connect it here. I mean, again, we were talking. We were arguing a minute ago between the Walmart and Costco. You know, what's going to win out? Lower cost. I mean, is is the Facebook model the zero cost, the low cost? I mean, is, is that not necessarily the inevitable move for most people? What do you think? Yeah, absolutely. Because the um, in, in the internet, the value you get from using a social networking service is mainly based on how many of your friends are using the same service, and so so the zero cost has to win out, right? Because that's the one that most people are going to use. So therefore, that's going to be the one that has the highest value to anyone using it. Yeah, and, and that's a fascinating one because, you know, one of, the, one of the early questions or models of the internet, uh, a book that I'd recommended a while ago, The Innovators, talks about some of the early creators of the internet. One of their sad uh, retrospectives was the wish that they could have had uh, multiple requirements for a link 
such that that you could have basically monetized in the internet people linking to your services. In other words, a way of having um, money without having to have had ads in a way that would have been more largely invisible to the average user. Uh, but that, that, that model did not win out. And so we live in a world where, you know, we're going to continue to have the question of, you know, Tim uh, Cook on one side saying, look, you should be paying a little bit more, uh, but you get encryption and you get privacy. And Mark Zuckerberg saying, that's elitist. I need your data to make this work. <laughs> yeah, although if you, made the, if you made the Zuckerberg model illegal, then the Cook model could work. Um, but but if the uh, if the, if they're competing against each other in free competition, I think the users are overwhelmingly going to go for the free model. But but the the Congress could have a role in just saying, well, that's an illegal model. And I think people would pay five bucks a month for a more private version of of Facebook where their information's not being collected if the free option wasn't available because it's illegal. Yes, I mean I think you're right about that. Uh, but I think it would be a, it would be a difficult pass by Congress given. That, that that model of free is the ubiquitous version of what people want to use. And, and I think that's the fundamental problem here is, is that people want, they, they think that they want something for free, but then you have Google or you have Facebook and they suck their data up and you're upset about it. But it, it, how many people have actually deleted their Facebook accounts? Yeah, or, or that's the same. To? I agree completely. That's the same thing I was trying to use through my grocery card example that, I mean, most people actually like the discount, even though the discount's not that much. So they'll get a Kroger card and they're giving away enormous amounts of private information for a very low price. But the reason they do that is because they'd rather save the save the few dollars than keep the information private. Mm-hmm. And so we'll we'll probably constantly have these circles. But it, I, I mean, the last thing maybe we can uh, leave off on is, you know, in a world where we're now talking about moving beyond just silicon for the for the future of processing, uh, the the ability to gather data will only increase. And I think that these questions will become increasingly pertinent and difficult. They won't get any easier to solve as time moves on. I think they will only become more difficult. Yeah. But. We agree there. <laughs> <clears throat> well, I th- our our last go, what I thought was going to be our our big story this week. I was I was prepping for the show and I was driving to school to teach my ADM class when I heard on NPR uh, Trump going off strip and announcing at a rally that the U.S. would be pulling out of Syria with haste. And I and uh, he has said, "quote I want to get out. I want to bring our troops back home." End quote. And I thought, oh my goodness, this this is going to be the deal. Now, the story was hot then. It kind of got buried in the face of everything that we've been talking about on tariffs. Um, but it has actually reemerged again on Thursday and specifically on Friday. And I think it is one of importance, even though it hasn't quite gotten the number of words that you might normally imagine. The Hill and the Washington Post are reporting that Donald Trump still wants to dramatically scale back the U.S. goals in Syria in advance of a full military withdrawal. Um, In short, he doesn't want to deal with state building. It is a position in opposition to his military advisors, according to whom the Hill and the Post are reporting he is butting heads. It is actually similar to the debate he had over Afghanistan. In that instance, Trump agreed to back down. This time, however, uh, there are reports that he is giving the U.S. military there a six-month deadline to, quote, defeat the Islamic State, end quote. So a very nebulous goal. Um, the Pentagon has been denying the reports of the six-month timeline. Um, so we'll see where, where that moves forward, but I'm not surprised that they're denying it. In some ways, Ken, this is a more bombastic version of what occurred with Obama. 
Obama came into office and he wanted to scale back operations in Iraq and Afghanistan. And he was never really able to get all those troops out uh, for a number of reasons. And then uh, the infamous, now infamous, uh, circumstances surrounding Hillary Clinton would get Obama involved in Syria in the first place. And as a matter of fact, expanding and instead of retracting from uh, countries around the world. So what do you think of this particular set of moves by Trump, or at least overtures towards moves by Trump? And what do you think ought to be the role of the U.S. in this kind of long-term state-building exercise? I mean, we've now had both George W. Bush engage in this, Barack Obama engage in it, even though he did not want to. And now we have Trump. What what's what is he going to do? What do you think he ought to do? Well, I think that the Syria is a, a little different than um, Iraq, maybe more analogous to Afghanistan. But um, in Iraq, we we didn't have to go in there in the first place, so the there was no immediate pressing emergency um, that caused us to go to Iraq, and so the concept of going there was almost, I think, entirely based on a an ideological notion that. Um, the U.S. should go and start um, uh, nation building in the Middle East to to provide a, an example to the rest of the Middle East about uh, what what kind of um, how they could have a more democratic style of government. Um, I think in in Afghanistan, obviously, we did go there because um, the September eleventh uh, uh, um, be, be, because the Taliban had taken over and uh, um, and Af- and uh, uh, bin Laden had run there, and so just trying to get him. Um, I think there was no really no alternative for the U.S. but but to go to Afghanistan when when that's where uh, bin Laden was um the uh the the um Syria uh you know it's a mixture right there there's very very serious uh human rights abuses and chaos going on there right now and ISIS um has taken over some of the had taken over some of the geographic territory uh of that country so um i i i think a military response of some sort was certainly warranted i I, I wouldn't. I didn't oppose it. Um, I don't oppose it. Um, in terms of what would happen if we pull out now, that's the that's the kind of problem that Obama was facing that you were talking about, mm-hmm. right? That that Obama would not have ever sent troops to Iraq. But if you inherit a situation like that, um, the pullout itself could be really chaotic and destabilizing, and, and cause um, a lot of human rights uh, abuses and and a lot of uh, maybe even a lot of death. Um, I, so I would say at this point, the the U.S. is in, and it's not. You know, I'm 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 on the side of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the uh, the Secretary of Defense here. I don't think we we can just pull out just like that on an arbitrary deadline. You know, it's funny because uh, as listeners will know, I am a pretty harsh to very harsh critic of President Trump. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but you know, this is one where I actually have uh, some sympathy with his long-term goals here because. You know, we now have long-term state-building projects, and I agree with you, actually, Ken, on kind of your analysis of how we've wound up in each of the in each of the three countries. But I think where we have struggled uh, with a military policy is in the end of these conflicts. The you know the, the what what has become known as the state-building portion. We haven't been particularly good at building states. We haven't been particularly good at um, changing the dynamic of power. I know one of the arguments here has been we need to be careful because Russia is basically going to you know, swoop in and have influence over over the area if we don't maintain influence. And in all honesty, that sounds very much like the flawed Cold War policies of the past to me. But be that as it may, I mean, I think it's time for us to have to consider, well, 
how do we leave? I mean, if it's impossible to leave, <laughs> you know, we're going to eventually have presences in, in countries all over the world that we can't continue to maintain. So, I mean, we're now, you know, just in Afghanistan, Iraq, and Syria. What if we ha end up having to do something else? Now we're going to be in four countries. What is yeah. the exit policy? So, I mean, I, while I understand that you yeah. don't want to leave chaos, yeah. uh, there also has to be a way to eventually get out. And this is, I mean, again, I'm you know, putting that there as a, as a kind of a libertarian pacifist. Yeah. You know, is this not just leading to more death in the long term? It's funny. I, I agree with you on that. And we're, we're um, you and I, in a way, we're both sort of arguing against type here because you would normally think of the, I think the Republicans as being a little more hawkish and the <laughs> Democrats as being a little more dovish. And we're, we're both maybe um, on the opposite side of where we might be expected to be on this particular issue. But I, I agree completely with the, um, the, the goals that you just I, I The idea that the U.S. can't have a permanent military presence all over the world and, and can't try to dictate to every place in the world what, what form of government they're going to have, um, which you stated, I, I agree completely with that. But, but I think on the other hand, um, so, you know, the, the U.S. has has wanted to be um, a world leader. We've wanted to, to to show leadership in the world. And that does involve um, having to step up sometimes. And, and when there's very severe uh, humanitarian crises, when there's when there's chaos. And in this case, ISIS, it's not just the, the, the crisis that they're causing in Syria. Um, they are a threat to the whole world, really. And so um, to just sort of say, OK, well, we've done enough against ISIS now. Now it's time to leave. Um, We'll let them, um, you know, take over half of Syria because we're done fighting them, and then they'll have a base. Um, I think that poses a lot of dangers that aren't. It's, it's it, when we leave, those dangers aren't going to go away. Um, uh, so I, I you know, and I think that's why we were stuck in Afghanistan for so long. I mean, I don't, I don't want to see a U.S. military presence in Afghanistan for decades, as we actually have seen. But I also don't want to see an Afghanistan that's that's run by the Taliban and that's. Um, being used as a base for terrorist organizations to launch terror attacks all over the world. And, and so I, I think there's a rock and a hard place problem here. I mean, I agree. And I, and I understand the kind of the frustration that you both want the, at the one hand, potentially want to have uh, the United States take a world leadership role. I ironically might take a, a, a more a back seat on that front, but, but putting that one aside, I think the Afghanistan issue is a particularly inter interesting one as an analogy to Syria. I think far more so, as you've already noted, than, uh, than Iraq. Uh, but one of the interesting things is about Afghanistan, so we end up kind of cleaning it up, if you will. I mean, I know that's an, an imperfect um, analogy, but in, in the case of the terrorist activity, a lot of that ends up just moving across the border into Pakistan, where we weren't willing to go. As a matter of fact, I mean, we even had soldier a soldier held there. I mean, that's a whole other uh, ball yeah. of wax. We won't get into the, <laughs> the details about that. Uh, but the fact that we're, you know, we're, we're that border becomes porous. So, in a, in a world where that ability is easy to move from one to the other, and we're not going to suddenly start bombing Pakistan, right. uh, do these do these long term stability projects are they really stopping that or are we just are we just sweeping the floor to ignore what happens under the couch well you know certainly you're pointing out that in the nature of terrorism you can't stop it I and mean, we can't even stop terrorism that's based in the united states right we have american terrorists committing acts of terrorism here so you can't stop that here you can't stop that all over the world but i think what you can do is um 
you know, there are states that um, uh, Pakistan has a stable government. Um, so, so the Pakistani government can play a role um, that we can cooperate with. We don't need to go invade Pakistan, but um, parts of the world that actually don't have a stable government at all that are that are completely chaotic. Um, uh, th- those those provide opportunities not just for lone wolf terrorists or small groups of you know t- to formulate plots, but for you know the sort of a version of it's not that ISIS is actually a state, but what they're capable of is very analogous to state-sponsored terrorism, and I think that's much more potentially much more harmful than sort of lone wolf um, acts of terrorism. Even even September 11th, which was 19 people. Um, and was very, very harmful to us. It's, it, it, was, it was a single day of attacks, but I think a, a, um, you know, a, a, an ISIS that actually has control over the geographic territory of half of Syria and that no, nobody's doing anything to rein in could do a lot more damage to the world than that. Well, you know, in, in when we were talking about the data, we were talking about kind of the big, the big statistical model. So let me ask a, uh, <clears throat> a potentially um, difficult question on that front. You know, so if we are analyzing kind of the costs and benefits of these long-term engagements in other countries, you know, this is a lot of money. It's a lot of lives. What is actually this, you know, for the the country as a whole, what do you think the actual statistical gain is going to be? You know, in other words, what's our beta change here? I mean, are we we making ourselves, you know, $100 billion safer? have we actually gained enough for the individuals who've lost their lives over there to continue to warrant that even if we do you know contain isis more well i think so because because i think the the it's you i i can't put a number on it but i think you got to look at it not just in the context of um okay if we if we let isis have half of syria how much damage are they going to do? But you've also got to look at that in the context of, um, you know, what what are we saying to our our allies? You know, are we going to be losing U.S. credibility and, and U.S. leadership there? What are we saying to other terrorist organizations in other places? What are we saying to hostile uh, countries? So, so um, you know, I, I you know, you could look at you could bring an analogy even back to Hitler or in World War II. Um, you know, we had these debates in in the country about whether. Um, before Pearl Harbor was bombed, um, you know, the, the people would basically say that like U.S. shouldn't get into World War II, no matter no matter what Hitler's doing in Europe, it's not directly going to affect the U.S. and And I think if Pearl if Pearl Harbor hadn't have been bombed, I still think at some point we would have got into that war because the idea is that it, it can't possibly be um, good for America or good for the world to have a, a, a Hitler regime completely ruling uh, Europe. That that that's going to pose such a, a great threat to us in, in some form or another that we have to head that off uh, early. Now, that, that debate, I guess, got short-circuited by the bombing of Pearl Harbor. But, but I think sometimes what happens in the rest of the world matters to us. And I also think that what happens in the rest of the world, um, you know, it matters. It, it, we, we should be playing a positive role in the rest of the world in, in the most egregious cases. Yeah, I think that's probably a point where we might have uh, a bit of disagreement because I'm... I, I don't see us generally militarily. Let me let me let me be specific. Having oftentimes accomplished the goals we hoped we would have accomplished militarily, uh, and I think in some ways we end up creating problems that we couldn't ascertain because these kinds of situations are oftentimes unpredictable. Uh, and so, you know, on those fronts where, while I don't want to disagree with your kind of overarching point that we ought to be kind of that uh, that beacon of freedom, 
that military, long-standing military engagements do not seem to have, on the whole, netted us that, except with a few potentially notable examples, like so, so for World War II. Um, but I mean, I think we could make arguments that that was yeah. kind of a, a unique, <laughs> yeah, you know, circumstance compared to say what we're talking about in uh, Syria or in Afghanistan. I'm again kind of putting a rock to the to the side for a moment. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I actually agree with you about that. I, I, I think if you count, you know, starting from Korea in the 50s and Vietnam in the 60s and on up to these current controversies, I, I, I see the scorecard the same way you do. I, I think most of those, you know, the, the, the military intervention didn't get us what our goals were. So I'm, I'm certainly not saying it's a panacea. Um, and I, I, you know, and I would probably, you know, on most of those interventions, you know, I, yeah, Vietnam, uh, um, uh, Iraq, you know, I'm, 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 I was against them. I'm against them. But and Syria, I even think, is a questionable at the moment that we went in. But I think um, being in there now, there, there would be tremendous uh, humanitarian uh, consequences of a immediate pullout um, on, on a six month timeline. And, 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 you know, we'd really be leaving, you know, maybe even millions of people um, just, you know, to the wolves. And, uh, and it wouldn't be, um, it, it would be, it would be a victory, right? It would be a victory for play, for uh, outfits like ISIS um, that I think, you know, that the, would be very encouraging to them and that could have spinoff costs. So I, 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 yeah, even recognizing the truth of what you're saying that um, most of these military interventions have done nothing good for the U.S. and nothing good for the places we've intervened. Um, I still think you have to kind of try to try to have that skepticism, but look at it on a case by case basis. Well, I think I can. Uh, I think we hear each other on this one, and I'll just say because this way we'll we'll inflame uh, a Twitter war right off the end. We'll see how many people listen to the end. You know, yeah. one other way to maybe that we might agree that we could uh, help in these situations is by having uh, more open borders. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In the United States to kind of alleviate those kinds of sufferings. Uh, <laughs> so there <Right>. you go. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if 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 refugees could more easily come out of Syria, we wouldn't be causing the humanitarian crisis by having our military come out of Syria. So. Yeah, those are very related issues. Bringing them along. Um, but uh, I know that now now I'm going to hear a lot of things on Twitter. But anyway, uh, <laughs> but speaking of all that, uh, Ken has been wonderful uh, talking with us this, this week. Uh, and I hope you've had a good time. Yeah, great time, as always. Good. Uh, and listeners, I hope that you've enjoyed the show as well. If you want to connect about this or any of the other bombastic things that we've been saying um, to complain or ask us, uh, you know that... Uh, the Politics Guys is both on Facebook at facebook.com slash politicsguys. You can also get us on Twitter at, at politicsguys. Uh, we're there all the time debating things. We'd love to be interacting with you. You can, of course, also visit us on the website at www.politicsguys.com where you can see each of our, we our biweekly shows. Uh, we hope that you'll join into us next week.